Hi, everyone. It's Kimberly Austin, host of Rock Book Show. Maybe you remember our long-running video series. It's been a while, so if you don't, it's okay. But we're back now as a podcast, and I'm so excited to tell you about our first episode in this new format. We are so pleased to welcome our first guest, one of our favorite rock writers, Annie Zaleski. Now, Annie's essays are regularly published by outlets like Rolling Stone, NPR Music, The Guardian, Salon, Time, Billboard, The AV Club, Stereogum. She's everywhere. And she's also a really good social media follow. Today, we will be discussing her new book, which is amazing, and it is one of the books in the 33 and a Third series. This one focuses on Duran Duran's iconic Rio album. It's a blast. And here is Annie. So you are actually our first guest of the new uh, podcast version of Rock Book Show. Excellent. Well, that that's, uh, I hope that people will live up to it. I love these 33 and a Third books. Um, because they really just let you dive into your favorite albums. And well, you must have loved the concept too, right? Absolutely. And it's funny because 33 and a third, I had been pitching Rio to the series since 2007. So wow. I, this is by the time, but when I finally convinced them to be like, please let me do this. It was the third time I had pitched the album to the series. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so glad you stuck with it because it's such a fun book. And it just brings back so many memories. Now, you first heard Rio, though, on cassette. Yes. So what I did, it's like many kids, um, you know, as a teenager, I didn't have a lot of money. And so basically, I would take albums out of the library. And so I would basically take them and I dubbed it to cassette. And you actually had to go into like a listening room and stuff? I remember that like our library in particular, like they had just apparently just amassed this media collection over the years. Cause when I was like in the nineties and this is when I was taking things out, I had like a, like an ancient craft work cassette, you know, of, of Audubon. So, which had to have been there since like the mid seventies, you know, so things like that. So, you know, they had like the old dusty cassettes that probably hadn't been taken out in a long time and then CDs as well. And so it was, it was just kind of this cool mix of, you know, eras and formats and things like that. So you put it in, would you put it in a boom box of some kind? Or your walker? I did. I had oh, geez, one of those like, you know, portable 90s boom boxes where you put in the CD and then you could like, you know, press record at the same time and do that. Because that's how I got so much of my collection early on. You know, I had some CDs, but they were expensive, you know, especially in the 90s. You know, you had to really, maybe if you went to like Best Buy or something, they were pretty cheap. Yeah. But, you know, otherwise at record stores, it was like, like 15 bucks. And so when you're like, I don't know if this record's going to be good or not, you know, you were very judicious about what you bought, but Duran Duran. And it's funny because I also bought Decade, their greatest hits around the same time. And I'm pretty sure the copy I got was from like, we had this used record store chain in Cleveland called the exchange. And it was then called the record exchange. And I'm pretty sure I got that for probably like a couple bucks. Oh. So I, you know, I, I had, you know, some, you know, and I heard Duran ran on the radio, of course, and saw videos. So I knew I would like that, but you know, but it was still like a little bit like, and Rio was hard to find. I mean, I think that's, that is one of my memories that was kind of dislodged from doing this book is that Rio was kind of this like album that wasn't necessarily everywhere like it is now. Um, so yeah, so it was kind of this like cool treasure, I guess. One of the things that really struck me because the Birmingham part of it, talk a little bit about what what that environment was like to them, what was going on then that was different than what was going on in London, and then how it how it really helped Duran Duran in the long run. 
Yeah, it's it's so interesting because you know, yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about you know England's music scene, everyone knows Sheffield and Liverpool and you know yeah. and things like that. Birmingham, I think, is one of the most interesting you know, music scenes, when you kind of look at it over time, I mean, Black Sabbath is from there, you know, way before Duran Duran, you know, but when Duran Duran was coming out, they had um, UB40 was one of the biggest bands from around there. And then also Dexie's Midnight Runners. So there was this like cool, and it was because it was outside of London, everyone was kind of able to do their own thing. I mean, I, I kind of liken it to how in America, there were all these kind of college scenes that were popping up, you know, outside of New York and LA, you know, it was everything in Athens, Georgia, and maybe things in, you know, the Chapel Hill area, because you could kind of, you know, you might see some of the stuff going on in bigger cities, but you put your own spin on it. So because Duran Duran was away from that, they were kind of able to, you know, you know, kind of hone their craft and, and become a little bit more unique and, you know, put together a little bit more of a unique sound, um, you know, outside of the spotlight, basically. And, you know, Nick Rhodes, you know, basically told me pretty much told me that uh, when I interviewed him for the book, um, but but Birmingham had some cool scenes. I mean, they had the Rum Runner, which was basically Duran Duran headquarters. And it was this like, you know, it was this dance club. They would have, you know, Bowie and Roxy nights and they would have dance nights. And so they did have these really cool, you know, things where places where people could go. And Duran Duran basically had a place to play because their managers owned the Rum Runner. So they worked there. They had a practice space there. And so they kind of had this like cool, almost little, you know, you know, Petri dish almost of all of this cool music, cool people. And so, you know, they could really try out and also see what kind of worked and didn't work in front of a crowd. And it was kind of built in. Um, but again, because it was outside of London, it was a little bit, maybe less pressure. Um, I would think, you know, of course, or, you know, when you, you know, but I guess on the flip side, if you are kind of you know, performing in front of your friends, you also need to know that you need to bring your A game because if you do, you know, if you do mess up and do that, you'll hear about it the next day. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, totally. And it's amazing how they honed this craft in this tiny club. What was it like 20, 25 people? It was like really small. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, you know, England had such a unique kind of club circuit at that time. There were just, you know, you could play at universities, but you could also play in these little venues, um, you know, all around. And, you know, there was so much new music going on. You know, this was in the wake of punk. So, and there were just so many punk bands. I mean, you look at the, you know, vintage ads from that time. And it's like, you know, who's who of a cool record collection. Yeah. Everyone was playing out, you know, because you could kind of do that. And so, you know, playing live was also such a major part of in England, how bands mass fan bases and became better groups. And so Duran Duran, and because it's smaller, you know, you think you figure in America, when you, if you're a touring band, I mean, you know, geez, you know, that that's, that's a, you know, that's a commitment if you're saying I'm going to tour America, but because England is smaller, you can really, you know, you know, you can actually do that. You know, it's something that's a little bit more manageable geographically. So that also really helped. Yeah. And let's talk about that because when, when they did come to the States, that was not an overnight success story. No, that wasn't. And, you know, Duran Duran came to the States for the first time in 1981 um, in, in like the early, early fall. And they'd already built up a little bit of a buzz. Um, you know, their record had come out in June of 81, their debut album. And, you know, because, you know, the, the way, you know, the Eng- or America did, you know, all the cool hip dance clubs knew who they were. You know, the girls on film video, you know, had started getting some play in dance clubs. You know, it, it was, you know, getting a little bit of attention. 
Um, you know, that was, that was a right around actually, you know, I guess I take that back. That might've been right. might've come out either around the same time or right after the band, you know, came out, but there were some radio stations that were kind of supporting Duran Duran. Um, and you know, an MTV had just started, but MTV really wasn't playing the band very much at that point either. And so, you know, they kind of, you know, made some inroads, you know, played some shows and, you know, kind of got their feet wet. And then, you know, Rio came out in May of 1982. Um, so, you know, about six, seven months later. And when they came back to an America, they had, they had a little bit more of a, you know, people, a few more people knew who they were, but they still weren't getting radio play. You know, MTV was playing Hungry Like the Wolf, but MTV wasn't in a lot of, you know, uh, cable you know, and cable was such a new phenomenon. MTV wasn't in a lot of households. So unless your household had MTV, you might not even know who Duran Duran was. Um, so it, it was, it's a very kind of interesting, it was a very long genesis to stardom. And, you know, in America, in, in England, you know, they were instant stars because, you know, that's, that's what happens with bands. You know, you have a hit, you get on top of the pops and Duran Duran did with their first single planet earth. Everyone knows who you are because it was such a, you know, that's what people did. That's what the, you know, pop culture was, you know, countdown was everything. But, you know, America, there were just, you know, so much competition and, you know, so many, you know, it was just such a bigger country. It just took them a little bit longer. Yeah. And the, those videos are so iconic now. I, I just, you know, you see them so vividly and they were so original. It's amazing to me how they came up with those concepts and it worked. Well, absolutely. And, you know, even, even now when you kind of look back and you, you know, there's some, you know, MT or MTV video checks from that era, when you know, Duran Duran was getting a lot of airplay and it, it's amazing even today how much more sophisticated and ahead of their game th those videos were, you know, I mean, because I mean, my goodness, it was, you know, you'd have all these performance videos, all these bands kind of on stage doing their thing. And then you had Duran Duran and Sri Lanka with this like mini movie, you know, it was just <laughs> like, and they're lucky and they had Simon Laban, you know, the, the lead singer, the, the front man who had had acting experience and was really comfortable in front of the camera. You know, when I kind of went back and, you know, rewatched Hungry Like the Wolf, it's amazing that he's just a natural. And not a lot of bands had that. You know, a lot of bands had very charismatic lead singers. You know, you think of someone like Van Halen, you know, David Lee Roth has never met a camera he doesn't like. <laughs> but, but he's himself, you know, Simon was able to kind of play these characters and really understand the mood and atmosphere of the of the song and what what needed and what the, the the video needed and so that also really gave them an advantage too yeah and they were also you know i loved in your book too you, you were talking about how his lyrics and the band members were talking about his lyrics and how they really were one of the things that broke that album was so yeah. was the way people could connect to the songs and what's so, you know, what's so, it, it, it was very, you know, illuminating kind of reading a lot of older reviews because mm -hmm. so many music critics, you know, criticize the lyrics and in very, very unfair ways. Because yeah, you, you look at the lyrics now and they're very kind of surreal. They're very poetic. They're very abstract. You know, Simon liked the surrealists. And so, you know, he was kind of painting a picture that was a little less literal and it was a little more, you know, this is, this is evocative of a feeling. This is evocative of, um, you know, a situation. And so you could really put yourself in the songs and, you know, especially if you're a younger person, I mean, you know, that's, that's everything, you know, you're relating to a song, you're relating to a band. Um, but it's also really helped the album grow. I think, you know, it's one of those records that, 
you listen to Rio now and as an adult, you can see different things into it with life experience. Mm -hmm. You know, you can kind of put your own experiences, maybe, um, you know, a 45 year old uh, as opposed to like a 15 year old in the songs. And it means something different that the songs really grow with you. Yeah. And, and, and really they weren't much older than their audience that was listening at the time. No. And I mean, and that's what's so, you know, that's what's so striking to I me. Mean, I think, you know, you look at pictures of Duran Duran and they're wearing these beautiful suits and they're very, you know, they're very well put together. Their hair looks awesome and their shoes look awesome, but they were young. You know, I mean, Simon was 23 when they were making Rio. Nick Rhodes was 19. And, you know, you think about, you know, as it, when you think back to like, you know, yourself as that age, you're like, you had no idea what was going on. You, you were trying to figure life out. And here are these musicians making this like very, you know, deliberate music and really focused and ambitious. Like it's, it's, it's you know, I, I came away even more impressed than I was, um, you know, before starting to write the book, honestly. Yeah. And now that I'm a little depressed about that, um, <laughs> I'll just have to take a moment to reassess my life at this point. Um one of my favorite stories in the book, um, because they're tenacity. So you've got the lyrics, you've got the talent, you've got the look, you've got the vibe, but also the tenacity. And I loved that Warhol story. I just thought that was so classic. It's a little punk rock, but it's it's just so Duran at the same time. <laughs> you know, and that's what's so funny around, you know, the the... the Andy Warhol, you know, Nick Rose came to America and he's like, I want to meet Andy Warhol. And, you know, luckily they had this amazing publicist who could kind of make that happen. Um, and, you know, and so in Andy was, you know, Nick became friends with Andy and, you know, and like when, when Nick and Simon were on MTV in 1983, you know, Andy showed up and they did this very funny bit. It's on YouTube, but you know, they, there was so much of that sort of manifesting things that they were so focused Everybody in the band was really kind of moving in sync. They were all had the same goal. They're like, this is what we want to do. We want to be successful. Here's how we're going to do it. And they were really focused. You know, they didn't get distracted. I mean, you know, obviously when they were young, they had good times. They really enjoyed being rock stars. But at the end of the day, it was like, okay, we're, we're, we're practicing. We're making sure we have the songs. We're going to put on a good show. And this is, we're going to make this happen for us. And I mean, it's, you know, there's a very famous line that, you know, they basically wanted to be, you know, Hammersmith Odeon, Wembley Arena, and then Madison Square Garden. And that was their goals. And they did it. I mean, that's what's so wild. You know, you think about something like that and you're like, oh, that's, you know, maybe something they just said after the fact, but no, you can trace back the interviews, like before any of that stuff happened, band members saying, this is what we wanted to do. And they did it. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, it's incredible kind of when you look back on it, just the stars really aligned. They really did. And it, and it's also amazing to me that Andy Warhol and Duran Duran is just so obvious. And why did it, why was that a problem? <laughs> totally great. And, you know, and uh, that's what's so funny about it. You know, Nick, Nick Rhodes was on the cover of interview. There's a really beautiful, like kind of, he was a very beautiful kind of painting on the cover of it. And yeah, it just all totally made sense. I believe they went to studio 54 together, you know, they were, they were artists, you know, and they, they really understood how, you know, art and pop culture could coincide. You know, it wasn't, you know, I think a lot of people, even to this day, you know, when you hear pop music, you think, oh, you know, that, that's something that's too commercial and it's plastic and can't mean anything. But Duran Duran really understood that, no, you could have pop music and they still understand that can mean something that can have depth and can really, you know, make an impact. You know, they were creating art and it just happened to also be popular. Right. Do you think, though, back then, as driven as they were, they really thought 
40 years from now, people will be still singing these songs, still thinking of memories, you know, bringing their kids to the shows and all that stuff? You know, probably not, you know, because I think with any band, you know, you're moving so fast and you're so focused on what's right in front of you. You're not thinking, oh, decades down the line, but it's, it's really, it's really moving. I mean, in, in the time since I put out this book, people have told me stories about like what Rio means to them, what Duran Duran means to them. And it's, it's really, uh, you know, a lot, like I'll get emails and I'll be like crying a little bit because there's such, there's really such this record and the band really means a lot to people in a way that I think a lot of bands don't, you know, there was a lot of friends who were, who, you know, loved the band and, you know, they spent time together and this was a bonding experience. You know, maybe I know people who bonded with their family members, you know, who would go see Duran Duran with their mom, you know, and, and, you know, the record and they would you know, dress up like the band and, you know, draw, you know, it was just, it, they're one of those bands that really spawns a lot of creativity and fans as well. And I think you can really, really see that, um, you know, even to this day, people still, you know, make this amazing fan art for them. So it's, it's state, they, they're kind of one of those enduring bands that, you know, that maybe, you know, back in the day, people were, you know, kind of might've dismissed them as sort of a flash in the pan, but, you know, they've kind of had the last laugh on everyone. They really have. And all the musicians that love Duran have done all those covers and it's amazing. It's the amount of musicians I've met um, across genres who love Duran Duran is, is, is actually, is, I find it very charming. You know, I mean, first off, you can go on YouTube and you can find all of these different covers everywhere. You know, it's it's like you can have, you know, jazz, boss Nova, you can have metal, you can have, you know, pop, you have, you know, classical covers, ukulele covers. I mean, it's it you name it, there is a band that's covered Duran Duran in a different way. And just the amount of musicians who love Duran Duran. I mean, you have Jonathan Davis of Korn who people, you would never suspect that Jonathan Davis of Korn, you know, just from listening to Korn's music would love Duran Duran, but he's a huge fan. You know, you have Deftones, um, you have people like Courtney Love from Hole who loves Duran Duran, Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins, members of Blur. And those are just like off the top of my head. It's, it's you know, there's so much respect for the band as well. You know, I think John Taylor now is, you know, he was always, I think, a favorite in the 80s. Um, you know, for his looks and everyone now is like, yeah, he's an amazing bassist. And, you know, mm-hmm. everyone like, you know, bass players are like, yeah, that guy's sick. You know, like that's because he's so awesome. And so the band members too, I think are getting a lot more respect for what they did and how they kind of move the, you know, their own individual instruments forward as well. Yeah. And, and Dave Grohl was another one who said, nope, we're not playing those songs. They're too hard. <laughs> but he said, you know, it's funny because I, I found video Nirvana in the 90s did this like, yeah, I don't even call it a cover. They kind of jammed on Rio and it was sort of a <laughs> noisy mess. And then years later, yeah, Foo Fighters were playing and, you know, and they, they started to play Planet Earth. And he's like, I, those songs are too hard. I can't play those. And Dave Grohl plays everything as everyone knows and so for him to say they're too hard that's saying something that's incredible yeah i didn't expect that that was a really cool thing to learn in your book do you have a favorite lyric oh my goodness that is that is you know no one has actually asked me that in in all these interviews i've done i know you know that's a really good question i like you know one of the things i've determined over the last few years is i really like how simon lebon is really good at sort of the art of the quip you know, so you have, you know, phrases like, you know, dancing on the Valentine, which I love, you know, you're about as easy as a nuclear war, which is like one of those turns of phrase. You're like, wow, that's, that's, I, I totally get that. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, the line in Rio about Voltaire, I have to say is probably my favorite. And I know that that's kind of a sentimental favorite. You know, he said, you know, the band were so impressed that I, you know, uh, mentioned Voltaire in, in my lyrics, but I just love that because I feel like, and I'm going to, I'm going to look up the exact one. So I don't misquote him. Let me find it here. Uh, it's on then from last chance on the stairway, of course, from Rio. Um, aha. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. All right. So. It's after he says, you know, I've had my last chance on the stairway and the, the, the verse is funny. It's just like a scene out of Voltaire twisting out of sight because when all the curtains are pulled back, we'll turn and see the circles we've traced ain't no game. So, but I like it because a, it really shows, you know, what band was mentioning Voltaire in their lyrics. So let's, let's start with that from eighties bands. Second off, you know, it's a very kind of sophisticated little scene, you know, it's like a scene out of Voltaire twisting out of sight. It's very evocative. And I mean, that song in particular is such a, you know, interesting, it's on the second side and it's kind of uh, you know, the moody uh, you know, it's one of the more moodier moments on the record and it really kind of fits the scene, but it also really shows that, you know, people who maybe dismissed Duran Duran as being just teen pop or fluffy, like are just completely misunderstood them, you know, because Simon was very thoughtful and very, you know, kind of introspective and very poetic about, you know, everything, you know, he had his book of poetry, his book of lyrics that he very famously, you know, brought to the band that he had been keeping since the late seventies. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's, that just is really very evocative. You know, you can imagine someone, you know, sitting there scribbling that down. And so I just, I, I just always really like that whenever that comes up, you know, just kind of makes me smile, you know, cause especially if you're a younger person, you don't know who Voltaire is, you're like, who is this? You want to sit there and kind of start looking them up. And that curiosity, you know, you know, it's people I spoke to for the book talked about how Duran Duran, you know, made them curious about other bands and other music. And I think that same holds true with kind of lyrics and, you know, and just the way they kind of phrase things too. You know, they really, you know, encourage bands and encourage fans to kind of look a little bit deeper. And so I think that really embodies that well. Yeah, that's a way classier lookup than when I had to look up what does the point is probably moot mean from Jesse's Girl. But, you know, that's me. (laughs) Exactly. Exhibit A right there. Exactly. Well, this book is amazing. It's a 33 and a third book. And Annie, you're incredible. I'm so glad we finally got to meet. What are you working on now? So um, later this year, I have an illustrated biography of Lady Gaga coming out um, via Palazzo Editions. It's a UK publisher. It's very cool. You know, and and Duran Duran covered Poker Face some years ago. So there's there's all all roads lead to Duran Duran. Um, (laughs) But it's a very cool book. And so that's up for pre-order now. And I'm at work also on a book on the B-52s for University of Texas Press and their Why Music Matters series. Oh, that's great. And of course, you can follow you on Twitter. Um, are you on Instagram too? I am actually. Annie Zaleski, author. Oh, why not? Of course you are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Annie, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. And we're going to encourage everyone to grab your book and enjoy it. And um, we look forward to the next one. Thank you so much, Annie. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. So that's our first episode of the new format of Rock Book Show. I hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to Annie Zaleski for taking the time to chat with us. You were such a fun interview, Annie. I thank you so much for your time. If you enjoyed this one, we've got more coming, so we hope you'll subscribe to our show and tell your rock book-loving friends all about us. We'll be dropping new episodes every two weeks, and we've got a great slate of guests scheduled for future shows. And if you have any great book recommendations, we'd love to hear about them. 
Follow us at Rockbook Show on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our theme music is by Dash Coombs. Thank you so much for listening and coming to join us in this new format. I hope you'll be here every two weeks with us. Take care, everyone.